Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for being here. It really does mean the world to me that you're here once again listening to The Tully Show, what I have lined up for this week, an airy, lighthearted conversation about political corruption. All joking aside, I love talking about this kind of stuff. I hope you like it, too. I love talking about the issues of the day, not the politics of the day, the issues, the things that are happening that might actually affect our lives, not talking about it in a right-left red blue kind of way not talking about the dumb hot button issues the omicron variants am i even saying that right is that where we are with coronavirus now we just have variants that sound like transformers um enjoy the episode that's about to start with sarah chase but before i get into it a quick reminder patreon.com slash mike tully i've been doing my patreon stuff for a year now and i've been averaging two three pots per week that means do the math there is over 100 patreon exclusive podcasts waiting to be enjoyed at patreon.com slash mike tully patreon.com slash mike tully okay you ready to start this show uh your host of the evening is a really funny dude um i forgot his last name but i've seen him before and he's really funny uh give it up for mike oh, to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a guest with a career far too nuanced and varied to neatly summarize. For starters, a reporter, a former special advisor to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the author of several books, including On Corruption in America and What is at Stake, now available in paperback. Hello and welcome, Sarah Chase. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Thank you so much for I I love the 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 backdrop where you are right now looks so much more comfortable and and holiday seasony than where I am right now so I I apologize for taking you away from uh, what I'm sure is a a, a growing winter wonderland. Well, uh, there's always time for corruption, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, it seems that uh, there there never has not been a time, I guess, since civilization really got uh, underway as we know it, where corruption could not worm its way in one way or another. I, of course, I want to talk to you about your book, but with America's involvement with Afghanistan, again, at the forefront of our minds, given your uh, experience there, your extensive experience there, I feel compelled to ask a couple questions about that. You developed what you have described as, I love this, an ant's view which is, you know, on the ground, the way to really understand things, how things developed after the fall of the Taliban in 2001 in Afghanistan. You worked there first, as I said, as a reporter, then in a very hands-on fashion, helping making goods to export, and then as advisor to Joint Chiefs of Staff. So really at a bunch of different vantage points into what was going on. I've heard you describe America's war in Afghanistan as an afterthought. Iraq, in your view, was always the focus. Is that is that about right so far? Yes. In your opinion, based on what you have seen and heard, it couldn't have just been as simple as that guy tried to kill my dad, right? What percentage of the Bush administration do you think had some sort of sincere belief that there could be a domino effect? You topple Saddam Hussein, bring democracy to the region. How much of that was sincerely held? You know, I don't have much insight into that because I had gone straight to Afghanistan and stayed. So... I wasn't, the whole Iraq thing happening was not something that I really saw until afterwards. The, what I did see 
was the vacuum in Afghanistan. That was absolutely palpable beginning in the early days of 2002, when we all sort of expected, oh, there was going to be this huge focus on Afghanistan and there was going to be a Marshall Plan and there was going to, you know, and then suddenly you're looking, there's nobody at the embassy. It was a revolving door at the embassy. People were doing six week shifts and they were like dragging people out of retirement um, who happened to speak Persian because they had been assigned to Iraq. You know, I mean, it was just, it was kind of chaotic and it wasn't, and, and, and we kept waiting for something to happen and coming up with these theses for why it didn't. And it wasn't until much later that I discovered that as early as February, 2002, US uh, human and material resources were just pulled away from Afghanistan and aimed at Iraq. As for the motivation, you know, ask me a question, and even if I don't have an answer, I view, I'll come up with an answer. I think that, I, I don't think it was solely a personal vendetta, and I don't think that it was misguided principles. I think there may have been some misguided principles, but I actually think Iraq was fundamentally run by Vice President Cheney who had a lot of material interests in the area, having you know, come to the vice presidency from running a major energy services provider. Uh, I really do think actually it was about oil. And so it's interesting that you start a conversation that eventually will get to corruption in America, supposedly about Afghanistan, and we wind up straight in American corruption. I mean, I went through for this book that's just come out in paperback on corruption in America, I actually went through the original uh, contract with Kellogg, Brown and Root, which was a subsidiary of Cheney's former company Halliburton. It was a blank check. I, I was absolutely astonished to see it. All of the, you know, kind of amounts of money, that column in the in the contract was TBD, 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 TBD to be determined. Right. And, and a certain and, amount of up and open-endedness was, of course, to be expected in the fog of war and war as hell. But you're, you, basically, the way you describe it in the book is, here's a contract that we're signing. The, the U.S. government will pay you for services to be determined at fees to be determined. Exactly. Exactly. And this thing was signed 15 days after 9-11 when the country was still reeling. I guess what I'm getting at here is how crisis can prove to be an extraordinary opportunity for the corrupt. Okay. And I kind of want to take this piece by piece too. It's a big subject. I had trouble wrapping my hand around it and I've spent a lot more time with the book than anybody listening to this has. But skipping ahead a little bit because you've brought up this particular example of the larger phenomenon of corruption, political corruption, American political corruption, in your opinion, and I'm not saying I disagree with you, but just trying to understand this, what does Dick Cheney stand to gain? I can connect the dots very easily. He used to run this company and now he's giving them a bunch of money. I don't know that Dick Cheney ever went off and lived in a palace made of gold after he was vice president. So it's a hell of a thing to do. I love my friends. And I love my former co-workers, but I'm not going to risk my legacy and, you know, uh, blood and treasure or whatever the saying is strictly so I can make a bunch of my friends rich. What's in that for Dick Cheney if that was indeed what he was doing? 
You put your finger on something really important that affects the way I think Americans in particular understand corruption, which is to say we are living under a definition of corruption that has gotten narrowed and narrowed and narrowed and narrowed over the course of the last 20 or 30 years uh, by Supreme Court decisions and, and such. And now the only thing that qualifies for corruption is a very narrow transaction between two individuals in which one person pays money or gifts in return for a specific act that falls within the duties of the public official on the other end of the transaction. The way I've come to understand corruption is a much broader and uh, more multi-dimensional sort of operating system, frankly. Um, and it's the operating system of um, sophisticated networks of people who include people in the private sector, like executives of Halliburton or whatever, uh, people in the public sector running regulatory agencies or the vice presidency or, you know, procurement in uh, the Department of Defense. Um, and they move around the way the network is kept interwoven is that its members will be in the public sector for a while, be in the private sector for a while. And the, the payoffs are not direct. They're often indirect. They're often uh, delayed in time, or sometimes they're provided ahead of time. Do you see what I mean? It's a much more dynamic and less literal and explicit an operating system than our law makes it. And so I have to say that for these networks, the ultimate goal is money. In fact, it is the most important goal. Of course, there's some self-aggrandizement, there's some power, there may be, yeah. I mean, I think self-aggrandizement is also an important factor for certain individuals like Cheney. So did he buy into this sort of grandiose, you know, we are going to change the whole nature of the Middle East? Maybe. But I still think that the objective of funneling money to the members of his network is an overridingly powerful uh, motivation. Um, and, and that's what's confusing about these networks is they take over governments, and I've seen it in a dozen developing world countries, and I was stunned to see how similar it looked in the United States. They, they, they camouflage themselves behind, you know, the institutions and agencies of government. But the real acts of corruption, again, are not so much a quid pro quo bribe. They are the way that network members who hold public office bend and distort the instruments of government. They bend and distort their institutions, their agencies. If they can't do that, they hollow them out. They empty them of, you know, they, they slash their budgets to make government serve not the people, but the interests of the network. And in that sense, Dick Cheney's actions, as I describe them, fit perfectly into um, this pattern that I've seen repeated over and over again around the world. 
And, and I want to get into that. We almost have to talk about your last book to even talk about this book. But first, one more question about Afghanistan and Iraq, yeah. just based on your experience and knowledge there. You know, the way that we judge those military offensives are always going to be, it's always going to be mixed up with the execution or, or failures thereof. Looking back now, what should we have done? And that's sort of a two-part question. I don't know. The America that I know, I don't think was going to take one on the chin and go, yeah, but this is a stateless actor that did this. We just need to absorb our losses and move on. There was going to be some sort of retaliation. So sort of in the realm, of, you know, they say the politics is the art of the possible. In the realm of what was possible politically in 2001, in your opinion, what ought we have done if the course that we pursued wasn't the proper course of action? And then politics aside, if politics isn't a consideration, what ought we have done? I mean, there is a strong argument that a more focused, um, almost judicial approach to the 9-11 terrorist attacks would have been far better. That is to say, a much more surgical raid, similar to the raid that finally took place in 2011, mm -hmm. that would have been aimed at ideally capturing Osama bin Laden and putting him on trial. You know, and, and I think that that would have been a far more powerful gesture because it doesn't aggrandize the other side. You say this is just a this is a criminal who's, who's committed, you know, a significant and eye wateringly spectacular, if you will, mass murder, you know, and so let's treat him like a murderer and not overblow his importance. Um, once you've decided to go in and take down the government that harbored him. So you ask a simple question and you get an unsimple answer. I don't think it's here's a simple question problem. either. It's very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, so here's the problem. The problem is that the Taliban government was in fact a proxy government of Afghanistan. Who was pulling the strings of that government was the Pakistani military intelligence agency, which created the Taliban in the first place, and which still held significant power over them. So if you really were going to go after the governments that had harbored terrorists, then Pakistan was your target, oh. not Afghanistan, okay? So, so what you've done is kick over the proxy of the real problem. The other real problem was the Saudi Arabian government. So again, there was a kind of paradox and we say, we will go after terrorism and any country that harbors terrorism. And we not only assiduously did not go after the government that primarily har harbored Osama bin Laden, which is Pakistan, we actually turned them into our ally in the fight against their own proxies, which was completely counter, I mean, it was completely um, contra self-contradictory, okay? Then the next thing we do, is bring back in a bunch of warlords who were notorious war criminals, in fact, uh, who had been just bloodletting their way through the end of the 1980s. The one thing the Afghan population were grateful to the Taliban for having done was kick out these warlords. What do we do? We say the, the enemy of our enemy is our friend. And so we bring back these war criminals and then say we're going to build a democracy on their shoulders. So, I mean, from the get go, 
this whole mission was so ill-conceived because you've got the patrons of the Taliban plus war criminals as your partners in supposedly building a post-Taliban democracy. Having done that, then maybe if you had really focused, had sort of said, okay, clean slate, however, you know, uh, no tolerance, we are going to move into a democratic future, and then held the new rulers of Afghanistan to minimum standards of respect for their own population, maybe you could have gotten an adherence by the Afghan population to this government. We didn't do that either. Um, And that's what we should have done. And that sort of segues into the more recent work and the subject of uh, your most recent book. So your opinions on the nature and the extent of corruption in the U.S. is informed by your experience in Afghanistan and elsewhere around the world. The uh, example I sort of latched on to Correct me if I'm wrong in this. I believe you say that while most of us assumed or were led to believe that the political situation in Afghanistan throughout our engagement there was a struggle between these evil religious despots and a mostly benevolent, if ineffective, legitimate government, you experience something very different. And that is your basically what we thought that they thought about the Taliban is not what Afghanistan's citizens actually thought about the Taliban. You've already sort of touched on that. But if you could explain that a little bit more, that was sort of the subject of your last book, Thieves of State. Yeah. What I discovered was that, um, first of all, I arrived in Kandahar, which was the Taliban stronghold, which had been the Taliban stronghold, and found that people really disliked them. They really dislike living under the Taliban. So there was a tremendous window of opportunity. By about 2005, I started seeing people sliding back into some kind of sympathy with the Taliban. And so, you know, what we were seeing in America was that, oh, these are people who are just against Western culture and they've never wanted to be invaded by foreigners, especially Westerners and et cetera. Instead, what I learned was that people were drifting back toward the Taliban out of indignation at the corruption of the government that we had put together and were backing. And so ironically, it was not the the government of Afghanistan that was tarred by being close to the Americans. It was the reverse. We were increasingly tarred by being seen as supporting and close to and enabling the corruption of the Afghan government. And so what I discovered was that this indignation at corruption was driving people toward extreme reactions throughout the world. I found half a dozen other uh, ideological extremist movements that when you scratch the surface, you started to find out that what was really driving people crazy and was and was proving a recruiting tool for those movements was the corruption of the government in power. And then you had, you know, back in 2011, you had the explosion of the whole Middle East, which we again in America kept hearing was about these vague kind of impersonal things like a youth bulge and unemployment. Whereas once I got on the ground, I saw, you know, pictures of individual ministers behind bars being carried by, you know, demonstrators. I mean, this was all about government corruption across North Africa and the Middle East. And, you know, look, look, t- take a look at 
migration out of Africa and Central America, scratch the surface of those countries. And you see it's, again, not just, quote, econ economic migration or people who are looking for a better future and all of this stuff. You find very specific um, structures and practices of corruption that are locking the population out of participation in the economy and politics of their countries. And in fact, you find very close interactions between the violent gangs in a lot of these places and the corrupt networks. So it took me about two days on the ground in Honduras to realize that the gangs that were, you know, committing violence against young men in particular, but uh, and other and families and driving them onto the roads to the north, that those gangs were in fact basically the basically the police, the Honduran police was outsourcing its extortion to the to the gangs. So the gangs were an instrument of government corruption. Um, and so I, I started looking around and realizing behind just about every crisis we're confronting in the world, you've got the operations of these corrupt networks. Why do you suppose, if it was so obvious to you when you got on the ground there, that that was not the story that we were told or we were allowed to hear? Or what I can understand sometimes when there's politically inconvenient, you know, the Saudi, for example, it's loathsome, but I can understand the angle. Why could we not just say to people the Arab Spring is a bunch of people who have finally see a window of opportunity and they've been fed up with political corruption for a long time? Why was that not a palatable or workable story? I actually think people didn't know what questions to ask. Mm. I think corruption has been, or certainly at, at that time, had been sort of lurking in the wings and in particular had been seen as an, a, a very boring technical story that basically is best left to accountants. Um, and so most books on corruption were, you know, um, soporific, <laughs> you know, I mean, they were pretty boring. And um, what struck me was that knowing how the system worked in Afghanistan, which did take me several years to figure out, I then knew what questions to ask in any other situation. And I was struck by how quickly I could find the workings, the mechanisms of similar systems in countries that I didn't know anything about. And Honduras was an interesting one because I had felt that I ought to have included a Latin American country in the book you mentioned, Thieves of State. Um, but I just didn't feel like I could take on this whole other civilization, you know? And so finally, a couple of years later, I said, look it, you gotta go and take this on. And I was stunned by how quickly and how parallel the structures and mechanisms were. Um, I would also say I had been warded off. When I went to look at Nigeria, I started, you know, I started that effort by interviewing Nigeria experts in the United States and was told, oh, don't, don't use the word corruption when you get to Nigeria. Don't, you know, like this is a very sensitive subject. Man, the second I put my feet on the ground, you know, I mean, this is what people wanted to talk about. And so I do think there is a disconnect between elites 
in America as well as in the countries I was looking at before and ordinary people. For ordinary people, corruption is the most important issue they're facing because most of their problems, if you trace them back, are rooted in the corruption of their governments. But elites have this much narrower and more legalistic view of the topic. Um, and that's part of why ordinary people get so indignant is they cannot make what is such obvious abuse they, they can't make a dent, they can't get recourse, they can't get anyone to respond to this obvious problem. And so that some of them will veer off into these extreme reactions, which can include extreme voting. So bringing the conversation now to your most recent book and, and bringing it stateside, when one hears, when I heard, a listener tipped me off to your work and to this book in particular, that there's a book about, well, now corruption in America is really, really, really bad. I, I think it's just this phenomenon that we have of where I'm already fighting too many mental wars with too many things. Can I convince myself that this writer is overreacting so that I have one less thing to kind of worry about, right? The temptation is to say, and I'm sure many people saw, said this to themselves as soon as they saw the name of your book on this podcast title, politicians, America is no different from anywhere else, have always been corrupt. And even if they are more corrupt than they were in the past— America's always been flawed, but we've always muddled along somehow. I gather you would argue we have, in fact, reached or perhaps even passed a tipping point. Is that correct? I don't think we've passed the tipping point, but you raise another really important, I want to say, almost misconception that people have. There's a tendency to see corruption as this sort of steady state kind of thing. Yeah, it's always been there. It's been there since the dawn of time, the dawn of, you know, organized government, and it'll always be there and we'll muddle through. What I discovered in doing the research for on corruption was that, in fact, it's it it happens like most of the world more in pulses than in steady states. You know, there are, yes, there's a certain background amount of corruption, but when corruption is, you know, the occasional event, the individual scandal, when there's a likelihood that the perpetrators will be punished, you're okay. I mean, you can't eradicate corruption completely from any, you know, complex society. There's always going to be bad apples. Yeah, but the problem is when it becomes the operating system of the country, as I discussed before, talking about developing world countries. And there was another time in U.S. history when it was like that. And that was the period from approximately 1870 to approximately 1935. It's sort of the Gilded Age, but extended a little bit further. And I had planned to sort of write a throwaway paragraph about that period until I started looking into it. And I discovered, again, how exactly similar the patterns were. You had networks made up of public sector, private sector, even out-and-out -out criminals that captured the economy and politics of the United States and twisted them to serve these moguls. Uh, at some point, you even had like the general counsel of the Railway Association, who was the attorney general of the United States at the same time. So, of course, he bent all of our laws so that they, you know, cut against the railroad workers who were trying to organize for a little bit better pay and better working conditions and this and that. And 
you know, the results. So here's why this is a big deal. I had thought going into working on this book that the concern with severe corruption is how people react to it. Oh my God, it's bad to have severe corruption because, you know, you might get a 9-11, you might get people joining the Taliban, you might get a revolution in Egypt. Then I discovered that the real danger of corruption is where it drives the world itself. Because what I looked at was what got us out of that period of significant corruption, you know, in the first part of the 20th century. And we're often taught that it was the progressive era, right? Teddy Roosevelt and the trust busters, they got hip to this and they passed some new laws and that was the end of it. And um, they did pass some good laws. Problem is they didn't, uh, they didn't apply them. Otherwise we wouldn't have had a great depression. The reason we had a Great Depression is because the kleptocracy went on unchecked all the way into, you know, the Roosevelt era. And so what is it that brought it to a halt? And the only answer I could come up with was it was this series of calamities that struck in the first half of the 20th century and first, yeah. And that's not just the Great Depression. It was World War One. I. I mean, World War One was all about these same moguls extending their reach and turning the, the resources of the developing world in Eastern Europe into more and more and more money, right? And that drives us into World War One. And then we have the Great Depression. And then because of the Great Depression, we find our we stumble our way into World War II. I mean, two world wars. That's two genocides. That's mass starvation in Europe, the use of the nuclear bomb, a pandemic that makes COVID look, you know, like um, a rerun, you know, like a poor rerun, and um, a financial meltdown that almost pushed the world economy off the edge of the cliff. So what terrified me as I, you know, did the work uh, for On Corruption was realizing how similar our trajectory is to the trajectory of 1870 to 1935, down to the pandemic and the economic crisis. But clearly they haven't been big enough yet. So when you said, are we over the tipping point? Well, no, the crises are gonna keep on getting bigger until either it destroys the species, you know, or we figure out some way to put some of these guardrails back up. Your book opens this book with uh, the aha moment on on your part stemming from a 2015 Supreme Court ruling. I'll admit, I don't believe I've ever even heard about this. McDonald versus United States. Worth noting before we even discuss this, this was a unanimous. Everybody's got their favorite Supreme Court justice, and there's the ones that they read their kids' books about when they put them to bed at night. This was across the board, uh, co-signed by everyone on the Supreme Court. What is McDonald versus the United States? Why does your story start there? This is to me, and I think to any ordinary American, a, a, and to a jury of his peers and, an, and all three judges on an appeals court, an open and closed case of corruption. This is a guy who was running for governor of Virginia, some tobacco guy, who wanted to convert to pharma, right? <laughs> to already start with those two industries, right? And how 
what their integrity looks like. And he's trying to sell these pills that are made of some tobacco byproduct as a miracle cure. To market them effectively, he needs FDA approval. To do that, he needs clinical trials. So he's pushing on that. So he starts giving the candidate for governorship, McDonald, uh, gifts. And then once he becomes governor, you know, he gives him more gifts and he gives him, you know, it's pretty in the world of corruption, it's not that significant. It's a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff and loans and money and cash and his water daughter's wedding dress and stuff like that. Um, and in return, McDonald does everything within his power to get the Virginia Department of Education to run clinical trials. He can't actually order them to do so. He doesn't, ha his authority doesn't extend that far. But you know, five minutes after receiving, after a phone call with his benefactor, he picks up the phone and starts, you know, calling the head of the education department. He organized a big lunch. He uh, tried to get, um, he tried to get this drug on the list of reimbursable drugs for Virginia state employees. I mean, this kind of thing. The U.S. Supreme Court, as you pointed out, unanimously overturned McDonald's uh, conviction, saying that all of these things he did didn't add up to, quote, an official act, which is what is required for something to uh, count as bribery under U.S. law. So this is exactly what I was talking about about how the elites in this country, including all at the time eight justices of the Supreme Court, are narrowing and narrowing and narrowing and narrowing the definition of corruption until, frankly, you pretty much have to be jailable for stupidity to, to, to actually commit an act that could be um, prosecutable as corruption. So you mean sh sh short of taking a bribe and then making a law, for example, that benefits exactly every, exactly uh, exerting any sort of other political pressure short of that doesn't mean that doesn't there was count. any there was no quid pro quo. That's right. That's exactly right. And what's interesting is you know, and so you can look recently, for example, at what had been HR one, the big bill full of you know vote, voting rights and integrity and in government measures that the current House of Representatives brought up. The ethics provisions, meaning the provisions that would apply to them and their integrity in government, dropped out immediately. And I spoke to someone who had. Uh, drafted a fix to uh, the main anti-corruption law that had been um, basically hollowed out by a previous unanimous Supreme Court decision. And he said it was very weird to bring this bill around to judges and legislators because instead of thinking about the public interest of this bill, the way usually it usually happens when, you know, a draft of a law is, 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 you know, when people are consulted about the draft of a the law, they, the, his interlocutors were all saying, 
basically putting themselves in the shoes of the person who might get prosecuted. Right. Any corruption laws are the only laws where the people making those laws are also the only potential part, the only potential targets of the laws, right? Only a public official can be the target of an anti-corruption law. And so there's a personal interest in weakening these laws. And that is exactly what has happened. And the reason that case struck me so hard was because, well, it was because of the unanimity that you mentioned. Secondly, what little attention it got. And thirdly, the difference between how elites were viewing corruption, kind of narrowing it and burying it, and how the population was viewing corruption. This was in fact, the the decision actually came down in 2016. It was a 2015 case, but the decision was handed down in 2016 in the middle of the presidential campaign. You had a guy, you know, saying, drain the swamp, drain the swamp. And people were flocking to him. You had another guy saying, our political system is corrupt. And you had people flocking to him. And and you had these two, I'm not trying to compare Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump in terms of their substance or their policy. Well, the messaging though is- But the messaging, that's right. And they were both tapping into obviously a strongly felt concern in the American public for an issue that was being, you know, dismissed literally and figuratively by American elites. And so what I was seeing was the same chasm opening between the understanding of corruption on the part of ordinary people and the understanding of corruption on the part of the elites in the United States that I had seen in developing country after developing country. Let me clarify something. And your book has a a vast, vast scope, but just to try to focus our conversation a little bit, talking about political corruption and political corruption in America, when one talks about that in other parts of the world, I tend to think of somebody as, you know, um, sucking a bunch of tax money and building themselves a, a palace somewhere. In America, although U.S. politicians on average are far wealthier than the average American, there's there's better ways to get filthy rich without any ethical, uh, uh, you know, log jams holding you up than going into politics. When we talk about corruption in U.S. politics, I feel like as often as not, we're talking about politicians who are potentially up for sale to whoever will give them money to win their next election. Is that a fair distinction? I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I think it's a very good question and a very good distinction to raise. But if you go back to understanding corruption, not as just stealing the money and putting it in one's own pocket, but rather the collective action of sophisticated networks, then it starts to look different. Because after they've been in public office, where do they go? Take a look at how many members of Congress wind up in lobbying firms making enormous amounts of money. Take a look at how many, you know, former generals have wound up on the boards of directors of um, defense contracting firms. Um, There's another parallel that's much closer than is at all comfortable. 
The developing world countries that I had looked at before are often called fragile or failing states. Have you heard that sure. expression? Yep. And I would often back then, you know, make the point that, well, they may be fragile or failing as states, but these networks aren't trying to govern. Governing is, you know, at best a front operation. Yeah, a necessary evil. And, well, and it can also be the instrument yeah. by which they conduct their real activity, which is enriching themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, in fact, these networks are failing at running states. And their states are failing at being states. But the networks, which are quite sophisticated, are also phenomenally successful at their real objective, which is enriching themselves. Now, take a look at the United States. Take a look at, um, you know, the McMansions around Washington, D.C., for example. Take a look at the... Um, compensation packages of top financial industry um, executives, right? Now let's take a look at the last 20 years. We've got two lost wars. We've got a financial meltdown that almost took down the world economy again. We've got an opioid crisis that killed almost a million Americans. We've got runaway environmental degradation. And look at as I say, the individuals who run uh, defense contracting firms, um, financial industry uh, giants, pharmaceutical giants, real estate giants, and fossil fuel giants. All of those people have either been in and out of government, particularly in the areas in the sort of defense area and in the financial area, or they have had outsized influence on government policy. Right. So, I mean, take a look at the failures and take a look at the self-enrichment of the people who are responsible for the failures. The parallel with the with the fragile and failing states I looked at overseas is pretty is pretty eye watering, you know, sort of the same question, but to pin it down to uh, specific. And it's really the same question I asked you about Dick Cheney in regard to the the, the wars in the Middle East now. Mitch McConnell. And I'm not saying I disagree with you. I think I do agree with you. I'm just trying to understand. You describe in the book mm -hmm. this concerted effort. We've all heard about the the this effort, this list of pro-business judges that they were going to that pack and they successfully packed the courts with. We were often told, I was often told, Mitch McConnell was willing to hold his nose when it came to all sorts of things with Donald Trump because he wanted to get all of those judges in there. That was a big priority for him. Again, Mitch McConnell, last I checked, I think is worth like $13 million that we know of, which is a lot of money to me and you and almost everybody, probably everybody listening to this. There's lots of ways for a guy like Mitch McConnell to go out in the world and make more than $13 million. What was in it for him? to pursue this, who really thinks about their class in trying to, uh, to, to do something so unsavory? You think about your network. Mm -hmm. First of all, you say unsavory. He may not experience it as unsavory. Well, you but know, the way that you I describe, mean, for example, you know, judges that are there specifically to deny uh, the collective ability of workers to pursue le or customers to pursue legal action against business. I don't know who real, I guess, yeah, good business, you know, rising tie, you know, raises all boats or trickle down economics or something like that. How can somebody look at that as being just good for the country? 
but he may not be interested in what's good for the country. You don't know what, I mean, we presume that if somebody takes public office, it must be because he's interested in the good of the country. That's a presumption we have to lose because I don't know what motivates Mitch McConnell, but I do know that who he considers to be his people, who he spends his time with, are not the voters of Kentucky. You know, uh, and he is married into one of the biggest shipping families in the world, right? So that's his people more than the people of Kentucky are. That's who he's respond. That's whose interests he's responding to. That's who he is beholden to because they're the ones who put him in office. And I'm sure that he also has a has the self-aggrandizement side of it too. I mean, he held an enormous amount of power as Senate Majority Leader, and I'm sure he enjoyed that a lot. But then, you know, so then the power and the money become kind of interchangeable. But as I say, I actually do think that it's not so much, how to put it, um, anonymous class interests as it is the interests of your network. Your tribe. The network. Yeah. Which, uh, that's right. Your tribe. Which you, or even your band you know, the sub the sub part of a tribe that you really know personally and you work for them and you are, um, that's who you want to please and that's who you're looking to for inclusion and, um, and applause and that's who rewards you. This is more of a minor point in the scheme of the, the book and the overall thrust of this. I remember hearing somewhere along the way that Madeleine Albright was on the board of Herbal Life and thinking that that was uh, a very unsavory thing for a person of her stature to be involved with. That's just the tip of the iceberg with Madeleine Albright, huh? It is. So wow. you say it's uh, a minor point, but I actually don't think it is a minor point because the distressing thing to me about where this country is on this issue of corruption is that we have now um, painted it red and blue. And so red people only see corruption on the blue side and blue people only see corruption on the red side. And if you, you know, and then there are these cries of false equivalency. Well, you know, um, you can't compare Madeleine Albright to Donald Trump. I'm not. However, uh, the facts are the facts, and she runs a linked uh, consulting firm and private equity firm, which is run by her son-in-law, which is, you know, just exemplary of this kind of influence peddling model that is the way that a lot of American politicians do make money after they've left is you play on the relationships that you were able to establish when you were in government and you both make a mint in, you know, doing this uh, advising, but then also whatever information you get from advising can then um, uh, be applied to your investment side. And this has become a model that I've seen repeated several times on the democratic side of the house. And so what 
I mean, I take us even a little bit further afield in on corruption. I take us all the way back to human evolution. Yes. And how yes. we as a species of primates operated a kind of revolution on the primate order, which is called egalitarianism. Now, primates in general are quite hierarchical. We still have that in our genes. And so we do have those tendencies. But for about 150,000 years, give or take, we imposed egalitarian practices because we needed to hunt as groups to bring down large game and in order to keep the group together, we needed to share the meat. And so some of the most dangerous individuals in the community were the people who stole the meat, who hogged more than their share of the meat. But the key thing to understand is the only way the band could, could curb, could rein in the meat hog among them was if it was by consensus, if they were all agreed and all united in the belief and in you know, kind of meeting out the punishments that would start being gentle and then would get increasingly severe. But if the meat hogs can join together in a coalition, otherwise known as a network, and if yeah. they can divide the, the egalitarians and pit them against each other into factions, then the coalition of meat hogs, you know, continues hogging the meat. It never works if, if the if the egalitarian tendencies are splintered up into factions and that's exactly where we are. And so that's why your question is so important to understand that these networks actually crisscross the political divide that is, divide, that is, that is you know, dividing Americans against each other. And so while we are clawing each other's eyes out over issues that are not unimportant, but you know, we are so busy focused on those that we're missing, I actually think, the underlying issue that drives a lot of the other ones. So you mentioned the uh, the colorblindness, so to speak, of the what we what we see when it comes to corruption, if it's from our team or the other team, so to speak. In your opinion, where does Hunter Biden fit? into all I mean so yes it's the the corruption of Donald Trump and his family members I think was fairly obvious to see for anybody who cared to see it but on the other hand you have this guy who I I don't uh I you know I feel confident in saying his only qualification for having some of the jobs he had was being his father's son that that's the that's what we know for sure exactly and I was I keep using these words. I was distressed to discover I'm I'm part of a large, you know, kind of coalition of good governance organizations. And uh, an email had gone around the listserv, which has at least, you know, several hundred members about this Hunter Biden story defending. This was just before the election defending, you know, against what it, you know, was implying were scurrilous and um false attacks. And some of the details of the attacks about this were false. I sent an email back to the whole group saying, yes, but yeah, to your point, but is this type of behavior something that we as a community really want to expand our credibility defending? Is there no way that we cannot um, counter what is false in the attacks while saying that should 
Biden be elected, we will hold him accountable to curb the type of practices that this embodies. Because it's not just that Hunter Biden didn't have any qualifications for that job. It's that the job was on the board of one of the most, you know, flagrantly, flamboyantly corrupt uh, energy companies in a flamboyantly corrupt country, Ukraine, while his father was vice president and in charge of the dossier on Ukraine. The idea that that, that contradiction did not undermine U.S. policy toward Ukraine is ridiculous. I mean, I had been living the experience of trying to promote anti-corruption policy in Afghanistan when Washington was basically looking the other way. But I didn't have, you know, the vice president's son on President Karzai's brother's cement factory, you know, board, right? I mean, that sends such a strong message. Uh, these corrupt networks look at what America does to understand American intentions and policy, not what America says. So it almost didn't matter what we said about corruption if the vice president's son was sitting on the board of a corrupt energy company. That spoke much louder than words. And so, I, I, I mean, it is extremely disappointing to me that my friends in the anti-corruption community who were largely or, or entirely, you know, affiliated with the Democratic Party, were not able to bring themselves to put the anti-corruption principle above um, partisan politics. And these are the best. I mean, these are the people who are absolutely in the trenches trying to improve you know, ethics standards in the US government. And that, I have to say, was a rough moment because it suggests to me that we are not close to moving in the right direction yet. Yeah, and it's not over. I think that story is over for left-wing America, but I, I don't I don't subject myself to a whole lot of TV news in general. I certainly don't watch a lot of Fox News. I gather that story's got legs there. And it, if, if situations were reversed, of, of, of course it would. If you're willing to believe that, you know, there was something um, uh, with Donald Trump and prostitutes in a Moscow hotel because of compromising, the possibility of compromising material, how can you not see how, I mean, the classic ne'er-do-well son of the, I mean, it's, 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 it's all right there and it's infuriating that um even i would argue to the point of being self-defeating the left will yes. will yes. Uh, you, you gotta you gotta Ignore own it. you gotta own you that gotta or own else it. right right especially if you call yourself the party of truth that's which, right you know i mean how many bumper stickers did we say did we see that were about truth yeah and so to me what's needed now is for us ordinary americans to, to see the shared interest in bringing our leadership to heal. And because the leadership is clearly not going to break through this color divide. Uh, I think it's extraordinarily difficult for us to, but if, I mean, there has to be a groundswell yeah. and it has to be about let's hold our 
own family, our own community, our own political party, our own gender, our own race to account first. To it, let's hold our own community to its highest standards. That is not an act of disloyalty. That is an act of profound loyalty. And if we don't do it, I mean, look at the series of calamities we ran into last century. What are they gonna look like this time around? What is it gonna take? You know, and, and you talked about muddling through in the past. What scares me is, do we have time to muddle through given the environmental conditions that we're now in? I mean, that's where the tipping point may be, not in corruption, but in the results of corruption which are in large part the environmental crisis that we're in that isn't just about parts per million of a gas called carbon dioxide. It's also about sterilized soil and eroded soil and poisoned waters and, and water tables that have fallen and biodiversity that's collapsing and, and um, uh, genetic engineered plants that are, um, you know, that are, that are restraining the variety of what we eat and are sickening us and making us allergic to things. You know, I mean, I could go on and on and on. Um, that, that's, the, that's the emergency I see coming down the pike. And um, I've written, I mean, you called it a vast book. It's actually not that vast. There, there, there the, well, some, the, the, the scope is, is vast, at least in the early chapters. I wanna say it's more like a pen light that mm -hmm. points in directions that are quite uh, widely spread apart. I mean, there is human evolution, as I said, there is Midas. The of money, yeah. <laughs> there's Midas and there's Jesus, and then there's the 19th century, and then there's today. Yeah. But I'm not doing, a, you know, like a comprehensive survey no. of corruption from Midas to today. It's, it's, I've selected the moments that I look at carefully because of the lessons that they have to teach us. So that's just why I want to argue a little bit with vast because vast can be a really scary thing. It's like, oh my God, I don't want to plow through something like that. And I hope I've written it in a way that is engaging is such a boring word. That's a little, you know, that kind of grabs you and also mm -hmm. makes you think in ways that you haven't before. And therefore as, as difficult as the subject is that it's also a little bit enjoyable. But the topic is dire. And if we don't get mobilized, we regular folks, these people are going to drive our civilization into the wall. Well, the topic is dire, but the book is punchy and readable. How's that? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the book we've been discussing is On Corruption in America and What is at Stake. As we mentioned, it is now available in paperback. So thank you so much for your time and your book and your insight, Sarah Chase. Thank you much.